Well, we've been working through uh, the story of Esther, and uh, it's one of the songs that we've just sung. If I manage to take down the words uh, correctly, I'm, I don't know about you, but I just want to encourage you. You might be one of those people who really struggles to remember lyrics. Uh, that, welcome to my world. I can sing a song hundreds of times, and I still can't remember it. So I was desperately trying to write it down quickly. But the words of the first song said this, The heirs of salvation I know through his word, through much tribulation, will surely prevail. No. Well, the last bit was close. But the idea behind it is this. The idea that God's people are consistently, if you like, sat between two issues. On the one hand, they are going to face challenge, difficulty, tribulation. And yet at the same time, in the middle of that and through that, there will be triumph and victory and success and fulfillment. That's an incredible promise that the Bible makes. Uh, And when we come to the story of Esther, in a real sense... What we could see is that working its way out in in real terms over the story. As we've seen, Esther is brought into into the palace at a point where everything in her life, in human terms, for this young woman, is absolutely falling apart. It is the worst of situations. It is beyond description. If you've been able to keep up with the story as we've gone through it, you'll know uh, precisely why. If you haven't, I'd encourage you to go home and read the the book of Esther, occurring in the historical um, empire of the Medo-Persian Empire. Here we have this young woman whose, whose world just collapses. Real tribulation, and yet remarkably... Through the events of the narrative, what we see and what we are assured of is that God is working through this. God is keeping hold of his people through this tribulation. They are going to be successful. They are going to triumph through the adversity. Now, what we see written here in chapter 9 is in, for 21st century readers quite uh, disturbing. What we see is an account of God's people uh, taking up swords uh, and literally killing people. It's it's kind of, it makes us in our Western perspective with a Western culture probably feel rather uncomfortable. It seems uncomfortable the idea of God dealing in death. The idea that God would work with, with instruments and on occasions like that. That it might be so stark, it might be so direct. As we see in verse 1 of this reading, we read, On the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. Now, that reminds us of what has gone on beforehand that on this day, the king has already signed a decree that every single one of God's people, not just in the city of Susa, but across the whole of the empire, on a single day, they are to be wiped out, obliterated, 
there is going to be mass destruction of all of the people. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. They assembled, nobody could stand against them, and really what the narrative is saying is everybody who tried to continue to oppose them died. That's the way the story works out. That's the the way the, if you like, the tables are dramatically turned. It's incredibly gritty. It's one of those, yet again, one of those uh, moments in the narrative of Esther where we're dealing with really gritty issues. You know, people literally being killed. In one sense... That's stark. On the other hand, I I want you to imagine the consequences of the idea of a God who we are called to worship, who, if you like, is some sort of uh, separated, um, holy being who is so far away from the gritty reality of this world that he is detached from it, as though our our spiritual experience, our knowledge of God, the events of life are wholly separated. As though the the gritty, horrible stuff that goes on in this world is something that just happens and, and God is somehow distant and separated out from it. You know, the reality is that we couldn't live with a God like that. It will be a God who is detached It will be a God who is disinterested. It will be a God who is disconnected with the horrible realities of this world. And yet what we see here is the fact that God is engaged. What we also see, remarkably, is that he is willing to be engaged in the horrible issue of justice. Now, even in this past week with the atrocities that are going on in Syria we realize that we are in this massive conflict of decisions. We are living in a massively unjust world. We are living with injustice and and working out how to respond to that injustice. We as human beings look at it and think, somehow we can't just sit back. Somehow injustice in this world has to be responded to. So we're going to see three things. Sorry, we're going to see four things in two areas. We're going to firstly see the victory of Mordecai. We're going to see a rebellion of a people group. We're going to see that in terms of human rebellion. And we're going to finally see it in terms of the victory of God. So we've got victory, rebellion, rebellion, victory. That's the pattern that we're going to be working out over these next few minutes. The first thing that we see, and the way that the story unfolds, is that once again, we have a complete overturning of what was expected. In lots of ways, it fits the the absolute pattern of the very best of stories. The kind of stories where it seems as though the impossible is going, it it can never be reverted. It seems as though the good guys are, are absolutely going to be wiped out. And the end result is that in a remarkable series of events, the whole thing turns around. 
That's what we see in this initial section of the, of the, um, of the text. What we see is that in the, the way the, nar- the narrator unfolds this story is that we see on the very day when Haman had got the king's edict by signing it on behalf of the king with the king's signature ring, on the very day where the uh, Jews were due to be destroyed, we now see that nobody can stand against God's people. And anybody who does, anybody who continues to oppose, is wiped out. Now, interestingly, what we also see is that they are not wiped out in this particular occasion so that there would be great sort of financial benefit. What we read again and again is that they did not lay their hands on the plunder. In other words, this was not about um, making ourselves rich. This was, in this particular case, this was about uh, a sense of justice. You stand against and you will be defeated. But yet, what we also see is that the underlying idea in that is something that we find remarkable, which is you stand against God and you will be defeated. That's the deeper idea behind it, isn't it? Because running underneath the narrative has been this constant idea that underneath it all is the idea of trying to stand against the God of the Jews. We read this story and we read it very much on human terms. We need to remember, as we say again and again, when we read the Bible, we need to read it, if you like, with our ancient clothes on. We need to read it as though we were reading it as the first readers the people who first knew of these stories. The first reader would read this and not see that is one people group who are attacking another people group, and that's terrible. They would read it, and they would immediately think that is the God of those people greater than the God of those people. Now, that's very important when we start to read the Bible, uh, particularly in these Old Testament sections, we do read it with our own particular construction of Western thinking, 21st century Western thinking. That is not how the ancients would have seen it. They would immediately see the underlying storyline. This is God who is seen to be triumphant. In other words... And we might find this uncomfortable, but I think it's a a thread that we need to hold on to as we read the Bible. God is willing to get into the gritty reality of this world, to deal with the issues of the day, and is willing to deal with the issues of the day in the language of the day. He's willing to do that. doesn't mean that it's It doesn't mean that it's absolutely how it ought to be, ultimately. In fact, the whole of the message of the Bible is he's taking us on a journey to redemption. But at moments in time in history, he is willing to talk in the language of the day. And the language of the day is about absolute power of the sword. And what God says is, do you know what? A tiny, tiny little group of people who are absolutely powerless 
in remarkable ways are going to become powerful. Not so that they are seen to be some sort of political military force, but rather that you will understand from the language of the, of the, uh, the ancient world that the God of those people you cannot stand against. That's the first thing that we see. Victory for the God of the Bible. The second thing that we see as we carry on is we see in verse 4, Mordecai. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. (laughs) If you've been following the story once again, what you would already have seen is that Mordecai is the very one whose life was, a death sentence was written for him. He was absolutely dead as far as Haman, he was the dead man walking as far as Haman was concerned. He was the one who was absolutely at the center of all of the vitriol, all of the hatred, and he was finished. And yet what we see again is the narrator is encouraging us to see. Not only will I make sure you know that I am the God who lives and you cannot stand against me, but what I will also do is reverse all of those challenges to the one who I have appointed, Mordecai. You try to kill him, And I will stand behind him, in front of him, around him, surrounding him in every way so that miraculously, incredibly, he will not die, he will live, and he will be victorious. Not because he's a great guy, but because I'm a great God. The idea that we see in this victory for Mordecai, where have we got to? Where's our minds as we start to come towards the end of this story of Esther? Maybe our thoughts up to now have been this is all about a queen who remarkably beautiful young woman who becomes the queen of the uh, great empire, saves her people, something way deeper. What we actually see like most great stories, is that the narrator, in the face of the victory of Mordecai, is desperately encouraging us, you must dig deeper. You must see deeper than simply the simple storyline that runs across the top. There is something way more important, because at the heart of it is a story which spans centuries of rebellion against God. Again, what we've said up to now is the idea that we will read it simply and read names. And you probably noticed that I took a deep breath just before I read all of the sons of Haman a little earlier. I tried to make sure that all of the uh, syllables were in the right place and in the right order. I'm not sure whether they were, but it was close. It's way deeper than that. Here we have... A bigger story than simply those few years in the citadel of Susa. Remember that Haman is an Agagite. That's how he's described. The story of King Agag, according to the first reader, if you, if you, were, if you were one of the Jewish people who read this story when it was first communicated, you would have gasped when you read about the idea that there was an Agagite at the center of Susa. It's as though, here we find God's 
Queen Esther, Mordecai, right in the center of the, of the capital. And then suddenly, from centuries back, this name appears. One of the bad guys. One of the guys who represents the constant opposition to God. If you had read the previous occasions of God's people, what you would know is that King Agag is right at the very center of the ultimate failure of King Saul. If you want to go away and read it this evening, you'll find it in 1 Samuel chapter 15. King Agag is representative of all of of the previous Amalekites who have been opposition, in opposition to God's people. And he has the opportunity, does King Saul, to, uh, if you like, to respond to that opposition and to, uh, to destroy the Amalekites. Once again, God is willing to use a language which is incredibly uncomfortable for us today. He deals in the language of death, the God of the Bible. And he says to King Saul, you must wipe him out. You must wipe them out. Because they have opposed me. And King Saul does not wipe out King Agag. He disobeys God. Rather, he takes King Agag, he takes all of his good, uh, and he he uses a a proportion of the plunder of King Agag to uh, sacrifice them to God. 1 Samuel chapter 15. And Samuel turns around to him and he says this. Which is the most important thing? To obey God? Or to make sacrifice. I think that that for us today as believers in Jesus. If we're a believer in Jesus this afternoon. That's an incredibly powerful thing for us to confront. It was the most important thing. To be obeyers of God. To be lovers of God. To be expressing our love for Jesus through obedience. Or to be just going through the motions. Just going through the motions. It is so easy. For us to fall into the trap of going through the motions of appearing, looking on the outside as though we are absolutely as we ought to be. And yet deep down we are not lovers because deep down we are not obedient. What a challenge. King Saul is confronted with that. And it's at that very moment that effectively he has his kingship taken away from him. And it's prepared for King David. In other words, God says, I will appoint the next king. And then finally, at this moment, we have this King Agag reappearing in a way in Haman. It's as though, as we see it written down, we see Haman is almost living out on behalf of his ancestors. He's saying, I want to carry on. And redeem that terrible injustice of King Agag. It's a great example, I think, of that um, recently. Um, I think it was one of the Oscar-nominated films, Quentin Tarantino film, uh, Django Unchained. Some of you might have managed to stomach it. Um, Django Unchained uh, is a story of um, slavery in uh, America. Spike Lee, who's a black American director, refused. He boycotted the film refused to go and see it. He said this, all I'm going to say is that it's disrespectful to my ancestors to see that film. That's the only thing I'm going to say. I can't disrespect my ancestors. I can't do it. 
Now that's me. I'm not speaking on behalf of anybody but myself. I can't do it. That's what he said. In other words, he looked at the way that the story had been presented and he said, my commitment to my ancestors, my commitment to everything that I hold to be my identity, I will not step back against that. And I will, I'll just not go and watch that film. I think in a real way, Haman is saying, he's representative of saying, what? I won't go back on my ancestors' identity. I won't go back on the identity which is what? What was the identity? Did King Agag have to die? No. Because he had every opportunity to accept the God of the Jews. To open himself up to the God who is saying, I have come in to bring my presence into this world. As God's people went through the land, they had every opportunity for people to come and to be part of and to enjoy and to relish and to love the God who is represented in his people. And yet there were many who made the decision, which basically, in a nutshell, is framed like this. We will not accept that God. We won't accept that God. We will stand opposed to that God. We have the opportunity to be enjoyers and lovers and committed to that God, but instead we will stand opposed. And the storyline continues. You will not stand in opposition to this God. You will fall in one of two ways. You will fall in worship or you will fall in death. That's really stark, isn't it? That's kind of, wow. And yet that's precisely what we see that King Agag did. And repeated again in Haman. It's as though Haman has this default setting. A default setting which continues to commit himself to the absolute opposition of the people of God. Represented in the Jews. Represented in those who are the proclaimer of God's people in this world. And the reality is that in that heritage, the opposition and the defeat is overwhelming. (laughs) It's Kind of emphasized, really, the defeat being overwhelming in verse 13. If it pleases the king, Aster answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this edict, this day's edict, tomorrow also. And let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. I'll be honest with you, you know, there's times when you come to parts of the Bible which they're really hard to talk about because they are just so stark. These are not, by the way, these are not kind of infants. These are men in their own right. These are men who, if you like, are carrying on with the same identity of Haman, who carries on with the same identity as Agag who sits with that ancestral commitment to say we will stand opposed to God. And the, the victory of God is overwhelming. If, if Haman wanted one day, then God determines two days. 
Do you get the idea? Simple idea. of Whatever you want to stand against me, I can multiply it against you. Now what King Agag had, what Saul was told to do to King Agag was to end that race. I guess we see it here really, don't we? Because what we see is a representation, a picture of the end of Haman and all of his sons. And once again, we have the idea of that opposition being sort of publicly displayed in this remarkably powerful way. As not only Haman is impaled on a pole on the previous day, but all of his sons are impaled on poles. It's this kind of graphic representation of what it means to stand against God. This kind of story demands our hearing, doesn't it? We can't just kind of brush this off as as cutesy kind of story. I guess we've got to respond to that. If this is a picture of the rebellion of one people group, what does it speak to us about? Does it just simply say, whatever you do, don't admit to being a, a descendant of King Agag? Or does it speak about something deeper? I think it speaks about something deeper. Because if we've got the victory of Mordecai and the rebellion of Agag, I think what we have represented is the absolute and consistent determination of the human race to be constant rebels against God. Constant rebels against God. Determined rebels against God. Absolutely, if you like, holding on to the mantra that Agag had, holding on to the mantra that Haman had, which would be something along the lines of, we will not have you to be our God. We refuse your intervention in the world. We refuse your intervention in our lives. We refuse it. And yet, what God is doing continually through this narrative is displaying to us there is opportunity for you to respond. We saw in the previous chapter that when the edict from Mordecai went out to all of the people group, all of the the empire rather, there was two responses clearly here. There was a massive response that saw the God of the Jews and responded and accepted and said, I'm going to commit myself to a God who is powerful in that way. We see that in chapter 8. There were many who turned to that God. And yet there were many who were determined to still stand against that God. They carried the cost of it. We refuse your God. We refuse your intervention in this world. John took that idea, the, um, uh, the disciple John took that very idea when he wrote his gospel. In chapter 1, verse 19, he says this. This is the verdict. Sorry, chapter 3 and verse 19. Uh, this is the verdict. This is as he kind of works it out. He says this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But people loved darkness instead of light 
because their deeds were evil. You know, I think that John's words are precisely what connects us with the stark reality of the opposition of Haman and all of those who opposed God's people. It's as though God is saying in in New Testament terms in John chapter 3, light has come into the world. Now, I want you to just stop in a minute and think, one edict says you have the right to kill all of the Jews. Absolute, profound injustice. We read in the previous chapter, there was confusion. People were saying, what's this all about? Why would we want to do that? And yet, there's the edict that comes out that says... You can kill all of the Jews. And then the next deed, it comes out and gives the Jews the right to defend themselves. We say, which is just? Or put it another way, which is light? Light has come into the world, but we refuse it. Because our deeds are evil. I think that I can relate to that. You know, I think it's very easy for us to stand and to talk about these kind of issues and to say that's all of those over there who are the ones who rebel. And yet I look at my own response to God over my life. And I know that I have much more of a heart of rebellion many times. I see that I have a streak within me which, which has a default setting by my human nature which says I have far more of an ability to say I will not have you to rule over me. I love my evil deeds rather than the deeds which shine in light and in goodness and in justice and in justice. I am far more inclined to that. And I say that so that I'm not at all standing here saying that's what you're like but I'm suggesting that if I know what my heart is like maybe maybe I'm not that dissimilar you know I, I know that I have more of a tendency to be one of those who hate God's intervention in my life I have far more of a tendency and yet by grace God is dealing with me little by little And he's knocking off the edges. And he's kind of making me, shaping me, reshaping me, confronting me, encouraging me, challenging me to say, do you know what? Little by little, I will ensure that you become somebody who loves my intervention rather than hates my intervention. But the reality is, for that to happen, he has to deal with me. He has to speak to me. He has to resp- I have to respond to his voice. And the same goes for you. We have a tendency which is far more portrayed for us in this story of rebellion than story of response. Actually, the numbers who respond remarkably are relatively small in terms of the the numbers that they could have been. It seems as though the numbers being relatively small compared to the size of the empire would suggest that there was a remarkable response to the edict of Mordecai. 800 in the city of Susa, a huge city. It would suggest that relatively small number actually decided to continue with the edict of Haman. And yet I know that light has come into the world and yet we have a tendency to love darkness 
more than light. Because if we have the story of the victory of Mordecai, we have the story of the rebellion of Agag, and we have the story of the rebellion of humanity as a whole. But you know, the great news is, how is it that God might deal with me? How is it that God might be challenging me and challenging you and knocking off those edges? Because in actual fact, he is the God of victory. He is the God of victory. How? Because precisely what John said, light has what? Come into the world. Just stop and think about the the incredible dimensions of that statement. Light has come into the world. In other words, the story of Haman and all of those who oppose God is a picture of human rebellion and injustice and gritty, grisly bloodshed. Gritty, grisly bloodshed. And yet, God does not stand distant from that. God does not stand distant. He comes into it. John says, light has come into the world. It's a remarkable issue how we gain victory over opposition in our day. Remarkable. There's a huge move, as you're probably aware of, for technology to achieve victory without pain. American drone warfare, as you probably are well aware of, is the idea that we are able to inflict military damage without any threat to our own people. The idea that we can send over drones into distant parts of the world and military intervention becomes more like a computer game rather than the grisly reality so that we try to distance ourselves ever more and ever more from the reality of the fact that victory is a painful business. I think, I want to suggest, that I think that that is at least part of why we have this conflict within us. It's almost as though real victory, in some way, we feel uncomfortable with the idea that it shouldn't cost. But the great news is that God does not wage victory on sin like drone warfare. He doesn't hide away himself in heaven and say, right, I can do this from a distance without getting dirty, without getting bloody. Actually, what he does is he says, I will not be distant. I will come into it in Jesus. That's what he does. That's what John says. He has come into the world. He's not stayed distant. In Jesus, he breaks in. But what's more? What does he do? Do you know, effectively, he becomes like Haman or one of the sons of Haman. There is something stark about a dead body hung up on a pole like we see in these chapters in Esther. It's a kind of a statement, isn't it? Of absolute, unassailable victory. I have won when you are hung up dead. 
It can't be more stark. And yet, what do we read? God does. We read that God himself comes into this world and then he gets hung up starkly as a dead body portrayed before everybody. He is the one. You know, God, as we read this, willing to deal in death, is not the kind of God who says, oh, well, it's all for you to deal with this idea of death. It's actually, he says, it's for me to deal with. Because the reality is that you can't deal with it. You're not big enough. You're not righteous enough. You're not good enough. But I will do the amazing. I will do, in human terms, the impossible. What do we see as Haman and his sons are wiped out? We see the idea that that is the end of his race. It's, that's the idea that we see. I'm pretty sure that there would be more Agagites around the world. Maybe some of us are descended from an Agagite somewhere distant. But at least that's what the narrator is trying to tell us. It's the end of his race. And that's exactly what we see when Jesus is hung up on a cross. It's the end of his race. It's the death. Of one, humanity. It's the death of the humanity who trust and believe in Him. It's that we actually sit in Him. And He dies. And it's the end of that generation. It's the end of that race who deserve death. And yet He purchased. And then what we read in Isaiah chapter 53 is this. We see that yet in him who has no offspring, we then see his offspring. We see people who live because he died. Here's the thing. Every one of us who believe in Jesus have done just that. We've died in him It's as though we have been impaled on that cross, in Esther terms, impaled on a pole, hung up in front of all of humanity as someone who deserves death, being contained in Jesus. And yet, what do we see? We see that he lives. We see that he lives. He defeated that. That's the victory that he talks about. That's the success that he talks about. So that you and I can be both guilty, found guilty, in him. We have our sentence dispensed. And yet in him, we gain life. Victory for Mordecai against the rebellion of Haman. The rebellion of humanity and victory in Jesus. Tremendous picture of the whole of the storyline of the Bible. And yet at the same time, it's for you and me to say, where do I sit? Where am I? How can I find myself suddenly finding comfort 
in a God who is willing to deal in death by dying himself. Well, the comfort is because then I know that I will live. We've got another few weeks as we just finish off this story of Esther. But the great news is it speaks about a God who doesn't leave his people. He's faithful to them, sticks with them, and saves them.